Welcome to a special bonus episode of Mind of State. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Michael Epstein, and together we are your hosts. Here at Mind of State, we don't so much discuss the news as psychoanalyze it by talking to some of the smartest, most interesting minds in the mental health and social sciences. Hi, Betty. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Well, today, actually, uh, we're going to really live by that moniker of not so much discussing the news as psychoanalyzing it. We are bringing back uh, with us today. Uh, Peter, can you say, are you here? Yep, I'm here. All right. Uh, Welcome back. So Peter Thank Glick, you. welcome back, Peter. So Peter Glick joined us with his colleague Susan Fisk earlier this week uh, to talk about the psychology of prejudice and, in particular, anti-Semitism. And we recorded that episode uh, before all of the controversy on Twitter with Representative Ilhan Omar and her tweet about Israel. And as soon as it happened and, and everything, I, you know, I went back to the podcast, Peter, and listened to it again, and it was so helpful for me to understand it. Uh, I, I felt, well, I felt the need to bring you back, as did Betty. Yeah, it was very grounding. So uh, yeah. we wanted to ground more. To, you know, walk onto the hot lava of Israeli-Palestinian conflict and anti-Semitism, which you're very brave to do. So welcome back to Mind Estate. Thanks. Thanks for making me a special bonus. <laughs> you are a special bonus <laughs> every day. Exactly. So listen, uh, for those who don't know, I can't imagine at this point if you're a listener to this podcast, but uh, you know, earlier this week, I think over the weekend, uh, there were a series of tweets uh, from Representative Omar, who represents uh, Minnesota in the U.S. Congress, in the House of Representatives. She was initially responding to a tweet from uh, Glenn Greenwald, who is a reporter, used to write for The Guardian, now is with The Intercept, I think. And his tweet was fairly innocuous, but I'll, I'll read it out loud to give everybody some grounding. GOP leader Kevin McCarthy threatens punishment for Representative Omar and Rashida Taib, who are both, by the way, two uh, to the first, I believe, Muslim yeah, women. Muslim congresswomen. Right. Over criticisms of Israel, it is stunning how much time U.S. political leaders spend defending a foreign nation, even if it means attacking free speech rights of Americans. And then there was a link to Haaretz. So basically, Glenn Grunwald was uh, criticizing uh, Kevin McCarthy, who's the Republican leader in the House for uh, attacking uh, Representative Omar and Representative Taid. Uh Representative Omar then retweeted it with a comment. And that comment was, it's all about the Benjamin's baby. And then uh, somebody from the Jewish Daily Forward uh, asked her on Twitter what she meant by that. And she responded, APAC, uh, I think an exclamation point. So, Peter, I guess the first thing is just emotionally, if you can, uh, how you took it, how you felt when you saw it. Uh, what was your response before I, anything I guess, else? Yeah, I guess maybe my, my first response is here we go again, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, just I mean, I think the tweet that that Representative Omar's tweet was bad. But I, I don't want to pile on to her at this point. I think that, you know, she's made an apology. And uh, and I think um, and, and we should talk about this whole 
this whole sort of cycle of tweets and apologies and, and all of that, you know, as, as some commentators have pointed out, it's very rich that uh, McCarthy was calling for, for this punishment when he is subscribed to. Oh, he's trafficked kind of- in the same thing. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of, you know, I'm shocked, shocked to find right. that anti-Semitism is going on around here kind of rhetoric. Um, and, you know, it's become really a political football. And I, I know what, what you two and I want to do is to kind of pull back and think about, you know, how do we pick apart uh, where, where we might draw some lines and where is legitimate criticism of Israel, of uh, lobbyists for Israel, um, you know, a policy toward Palestinians. I mean, all of that is, you know, really legitimate stuff to criticize. And, and I, yeah, I think know, I, the that, reason we brought you back, Peter, was because I think there's a fair amount of confusion and, and neither, nobody really feels at this point, any, nobody, there's no value in name calling. Um, and you know, like you, uh, we want to really dive in. And I think that there were two things for me, cause I had a lot of conversations this week with friends uh, and family. And, you know, the first thing is why, why were people offended? Why? Cause a lot of people don't think that she was trafficking in anti-Semitic tropes. Um, so where is the argument to start with, uh, for people who were upset or offended? Right. So, uh, you know, we've talked about this on the, the earlier podcast, the, the stereotype of Jews as this kind of cabal, with uh, greater influence in the world, um, you know, using money to corrupt and, and to buy influence. Um, and so, you know, it really feeds in. It's, it's you know, if you understand the, the context and the history, then her tweet that it was all about the money, um, you know, really feeds into that conspiracy theory kind of um, view and then, you know, piling it all onto APAC as, uh, you know, that, that you know, um, Jewish lobbyists control American policy, um, you know, and the same thing with Greenwald saying that, and I'm kind of assuming he's Jewish, actually, or at least by birth, um, you know, piling on, uh, you know, in that way, that, that also raises those specters. Now, I think, you know, it's something to be sensitive to, but it shouldn't be quashing criticism of Israel. It shouldn't be quashing criticism of lobbyists or any of, of that sort of thing. But it, it's it's generalizing it in a way. Um, and, and of course, Twitter is not really conducive to you know Deep, uh, uh, a really nuanced inquiry. kind of discussion. Really, I find Twitter <laughs> very subtle, and it, you know. Yeah. I mean, this right. This goes to your, I believe we talked about this in the podcast about how social media spins us. And, and part of our goal here is to stop the spin and to analyze rather than react. And, and so what you're saying, Peter, is that the, um, the cabal, the, the conspiracy is that Jews are this competent minority and therefore as competent, as we said in the podcast, threatening. And they, they, they have this money and they drive um, – they, they, there's this grand sort of power that they, they possess with banking and money under their control. Right. I think that's the question, right? Can you, can you put the all about the Benjamins in the context of how you uh, look at in your stereotype – and, you know, the – Right. 
right? Well, you know, it's very similar to the kind of um, conspiracy theories that that McCarthy also, um, you know, has been endorsing, uh, that there are these Jewish bankers, Jewish financiers, that they control all this money and they um, and they therefore have have outsized influence. When okay, we also have people who are not Jewish who have a lot of money who have this kind of influence. But it's it's you know the question is is there kind of a moral double standard that's subtly baked into the comments? Um, is it is it kind of drawing out a wider stereotype? And this implication that Jews are out there as this particularly powerful minority group that um, that uh, you know is involved in these secretive conspiracies by which they wield outsized influence over everything. And of course, you know it's hard to know sometimes where to draw these lines. Um, so you know there is. Uh, you know, a lobby for Israel that might be more powerful than a lot of other lobbies. There's also the NRA, which is an extremely powerful lobby, um, but it's not associated with a particular ethnic or religious group. So, and it's you know, not it's, having conspiracy theories drawn about the NRA. Well, there are some yeah. narratives about. You know, the NRA. I think that that's interesting you bring that up because a lot of people say, well, "Well, all she's doing is criticizing lobbyists." So, how is it okay to criticize the NRA? Uh, how is it okay to criticize, say, big oil, if you're an environmentalist, uh, and not okay to criticize APEC? She's just calling out lobbyists for what they do. How right. is that anti-Semitic? And I don't think, if if it's just calling out lobbyists for what they do, I don't think it is anti-Semitic. And I don't think that you can, um, you know, shield yourself from any criticism by, you know, just claiming that any criticism of your group or of your nation's policies is reflecting, um, you know, uh, uh, is, is racist, anti-Semitic, whatever. So I think that, you know, we have to, to draw those lines and where those lines exactly occur that can be subtle and difficult, and we could legitimately disagree on how bad the comment is. Um, so, you know, the question, and again, Twitter, I mean, I feel in some ways, <laughs> I think, you know, politicians are, are under a lot of pressure to use Twitter. It, it, it got Trump elected, arguably, um, and, and AOC, right, she's, you know, become very adept. She's very adept at social media, and she's gotten tons of attention. Um, and so really using social media and, and, and sites like Twitter is something that, that has been become really incentivized for politicians, and, and it demands this kind of fast reaction, uh, which gets people in in trouble. Um, so, you well, know, it also precludes that, thinking because it's just right. all reaction, action, reaction, uh, tweet, comment, and repartee. That that's da- that's dangerous. It seems like in in this context, in well, this situation, and certainly, you know, she's had a. I mean, she's apologized previously, and I, I don't mean to to pile on here, but but there's the context for her prior tweet from several years earlier. Uh, that Jews had hypnotized people right, to support Israel, or at least that right. was the sort of implication. I, I think she used the word hypnotize. Well, right. and the, that, the that seems to resonate with this kind of secret cabal sort of thing. I mean, it's hard because I, I think we're taking, um, you know, very short comments and, and we're also reading something into them. Um, but when, when that's it, 
there in the background as kind of cultural stereotypes um, with a very you know bad history. You can see why why Jews would be very sensitized to them. You know, if she'd written uh, an extensive criticism of APAC and you know stuck to the facts, I think she could have a very powerful argument um, about uh, about the influence of this particular lobby group. I, I don't think she, I, I you know I don't think she should be precluded or censored in any way from making a specific criticism of a specific lobby, you know, not just having to talk about lobbyists in general. I, I have no problem with her, uh, you know, criticizing APAC and talking about it in a kind of factual way that really makes the case. The problem is when you make these overarching kinds of comments that, well, it's the language you use. These stereotypes. And the manner in which she used it. It was like um, the language, whatever the content of it was, was quick and flip. And and, um, and, and resident of right. something that Walk. is pernicious and ugly. I mean, I think it's interesting if we can flip the conversation for a sec, because I think that the Jewish community, of which I am a member, um, you know, I would have defended her uh, criticizing APEC. And I would have defended her criticisms of Israel and the Netanyahu government. I mean, it's, it's very hard to believe in a social contract and inalienable rights and to not look at the plight of the Palestinians in the occupied territories and, and not think that at the very minimum, the status quo must change. Uh, so, you know, add, no, but, the, but criticisms of Israel, criticisms of APEC, uh, on the other side, you know, are off, too often conflated with anti-Semitism. And I wonder if you could speak to that, because in some ways, I think that's just as much a part of this dynamic. Um, and I think it's part of why we can't talk about this now and why people couldn't see uh, why this language was so dangerous, because they also look at it and say, oh, so now, you know, any criticism of, of Israel... Israel is anti-Semitic, so I can't say anything? Is that what you're telling me? Right, and I, I think you're absolutely right that that's a very dangerous road to go down, is to say that, you know, we can't have any uh, any, any kind of criticism. I think, again, it's, it's sort of criticism that sticks to the facts, that builds a case without implying motives on the part of a broad group of people, uh, and that, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's like dog whistles in politics. You know, we talk about racist dog whistles. Uh, you know, they can be subtle or more overt. And the, the more subtle ones, you know, you have to, to see that connection in historical context. And you have to be aware of that. And, and that's, you know, to Representative Omar's credit, you know, she, um, you know, that, that's what she said in her apology is like thinking about the context of these stereotypes in this history, um, that that's why she apologized. So I think that's, you know, that's, that's really good. And I, I don't think she should be ostracized any further. Sure I think it's, you know, this should be a right. kind of a, a moment where we reflect on this and, and where, how do we want to frame these debates so that we can have legitimate uh, discussion and criticism of, for instance, lobbyists and, you know, and, and the Israel. state of Israel right. and, Look, I, and as, all of that. As right. I said and to somebody, if she came out in support of BDS, the, 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 the movement to, su to support su the Palestinian effort. Through, through a boycott, you know, I, I would have defended that right. 
I may have even, you know what I mean? It's, it's, there's too many of these hot button toxic things where all of a sudden I think people are quick to charge anti-Semitism so that when it shows up, it's like the boy who cries wolf. When it comes up, you don't have the language anymore uh, to discuss it. Well, and it, it, we go back to Greenwald's um, comment uh, in McCarthy's criticism of of Omar and Representative Tayyib. Um, you know, these are two freshman women, congresswomen, who are the first Muslims to uh, sit on um, in the House, and this the significance of their identity can't be. Um, obscured here that that McCarthy was calling them out for criticism of Israel and and I think that that the they this situation was sitting on a tinderbox from the beginning exactly and and, and he's trafficking in terrible yeah, absolutely. stereotypes too absolutely and that he's stoking something and as you put it Peter there was a political football that's getting tossed back and forth or or I think it's a flaming baton and who's going to get burned and and underneath it is what we're missing which is the meaning of all of this and and it's the drama is distracting all of us of all this finger pointing and and this this incendiary um language and implications um, all being looked at between the lines, and you know, David Duke enters into the fray, and that's that's you know it, another another Molotov cocktail into it right. with his calling uh, calling the Jews guerrillas, Zionist guerrillas, which is uh, abhorrent and and a mixed metaphor, man. I yeah, mean, get, I don't your, know, get your racism yeah. straight. <laughs> Get your racism straight, I didn't even dude. get that. That sort of stopped me when I saw that. You Actually, know. yeah. Peter, can you do us a favor? Can Is you... it an elephant in the room? What are we talking right. about here? Um, can you go back and, and help us understand, at least as, y- as you and Susan and, and others like Amy Cuddy, look at uh, something like anti-Semitism and why it is so... Um, Hot button. Well, and also why it just sort of holds... You, you know, no political party. Everybody can pick that baton up, as you put it, and be anti-Semitic. The left, the right, doesn't really, you know, have any domain. What is the dynamic as you see it of anti-Semitism? Again, I know we did it on Tuesday. Right. And could you put it then in the context of it's all about the Benjamins? Right. So, I mean, we, we can go into the deeper dive, which would be really the historical circumstances that have always seemed to conspire to put the Jews in what we call the envious prejudice category. That is of a, a perceived competent, uh, in, in fact, maybe even hyper competent and powerful group uh, that is seen, though, also as having ill intent toward the rest of society. And that really traces back through 2,000 years of history, I mean, you know, as we all know, Jesus was a Jew. Um, Christianity came out of Judaism. Judaism was the parent religion. And one of the the big tasks of early uh, Christianity was to, you know, it was was improbable that it survived and spread as it did historically. One of the big tasks was to, to, to explain how Jesus was the Messiah when most uh, most Jews at the time rejected his messiahhood, and that really, uh, you know, the the answer to that was, well, you're denying the Son of God. You you must be evil. You must be, you know, sons of the devil, right? And we get into early Christian writings, including to the New Testament, some anti-Semitic statements because 
um, you know, because of this close relationship. And, and Judaism, you know, if we think back then, you know, now Christianity is the powerful religion. Back then, Judaism was the parent religion, and Christianity was this small breakaway sect that had to establish itself and give itself credibility. So, you know, right from the start, we have that, and that that led to, you know, Jews as this, um, having this evil intent, I mean, and and literally being allied with the devil through most of history, from the founding of Christianity. And that, that's, so that's kind of the beginning of it. And then, you know, this got changed also. It's kind of like the historical circumstances changed in ways that still conspired to put Jews into the same categories. You know, if you're allied with the devil, you must be powerful, right? And, you know, plague was blamed on witches. It was also blamed on the Jews, um, as allies of the devil, you could potentially somehow mysteriously have these occult powers to cause the plague. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, Jews also became money lenders because there was a Christian prohibition against doing that, and it became a space that Jews were allowed to occupy. Well, that's not a great space to be in. Um, nobody likes the person who lends them money and charges them interest. Uh, and so, you know, there too, and, and, and of course, then you get some prominent Jews in banking. And that's, a, you know, that's again, that middleman minority, that, that um, you know, that, that envious prejudice category. Uh, and then, you know, we go through uh, more recently with the establishment of the state of Israel. And, you know, it's a powerful it's a powerful little country. Um, so, you know, there too, it now becomes potentially seen as the oppressor, uh, and this minority that has, or this small country that has, uh, more power than other countries at size, uh, influence in the United States. Uh, and so all of these really keep Jews in that same category and it becomes all, you know, again, I think the key thing is this perception of, of, of ill intent, and if you generalize that intention, that's very different than saying, okay, here's some policies that really are wrong, you know, immoral. I don't have any problems with saying, um, you know, uh, some of the is current Israeli policies toward Palestinians are immoral. And you make the case and you build it on the facts. But to, when you start to imply that um, Jews have evil intent, Right. That's where you're starting to cross that line. Where exactly does that happen? I think we could debate that in any specific instance. Some will be more obvious than others. But that's where I think it, it goes over the line and feeds into all this whole historical context that, you know, generated the Holocaust, for example. I mean, the Nazis, if you ever I, I, I do a course on the Holocaust and, and one of the things I show is uh, the film The Eternal Jew. Uh, which is banned in Germany, but you can you can find a copy of this film. And, you know, one of the things that the Nazis complained about about the Jews was, for instance, too much Jewish doctors, right? Too many Jewish doctors. Well, you know, that seems like a weird complaint. There's all these Jewish doctors, right? Um, but, you know, you can see how that fits into this high-status minority kind of um, 
kind of conception, right? Um, the competence becomes a negative trait because it's presumed to be combined with evil intentions. And from what you're saying across history, what, what strikes me is that there's a symbolism that gets attached to being Jewish and that instead of policies, as, as you mentioned, about um, Palestinians needing more rights in, in Israel, it, it becomes emotional, that, that there is this emotional um, attachment to what, what a Jew is, um, which has developed across history as being um, the killer of, of Christ. Um, but that had emerged as a competition between Christianity and Judaism, Judaism being the parent religion, as you mentioned. So there's an edible conflict in, in our language of psychoanalysis, this competition between a, a, a presiding stable religion and a new religion that needed to supersede its parent. And, and, and then now the Jews have become symbolized as, as these figures of, of, of usurious um, middlemen. And, and so it, it's Greed. an emotional, Greed. it's emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can't talk and think about policy when you're dealing with this emotional symbol. Well, and on the other side, I will say, you know, Betty, you know, I I find it disgusting that the Senate is taking up a bill to effectively make free speech illegal as it comes to the BDS movement. Yeah, that's, it's it, it's so it's profoundly absurd. and deeply un-American, and that they're well, using it, and that the, and that they're using it. People like Marco Rubio and others are using it as a way to charge, you know people like Taib and Omar with anti-Semitism for just criticizing. I mean, what? It well, seems like I mean, everybody's it, lost their mind. Well, here. it's it's like Mitch McConnell saying on the Senate floor, the expansion of voting is a power grab by um, yeah, well, the immigrants to... It's a different podcast. It's a different subject. But right, and look, and then Donald Trump comes into the middle of all of this and says that Omar should resign. It's The whole thing is just uh, depressing because we don't know how to talk about it. And... Um, I think you're right. I mean, look, I think what's what struck me personally uh, when I read the tweet as so problematic is that it implied that uh, congressmen, women, uh, the people would not support Israel were it not for the money, right? It's all about the Benjamins. If it wasn't for the Jewish money, these people would have – would hold different opinions. And uh, that that was for me – the third rail. That, I had an emotional response. I'll be honest, right? Uh, and I'm very critical of Israel, but that that uh, just hit me like at a deep emotional level because it it the implication is they wouldn't believe this or act this way were it not for a minority having outsized influence because of their money. Yeah, and I want to go back to a couple, you know, to play to Betty's um, psychoanalytic themes. I, a couple of themes that that really come out of of these stereotypes of Jews, um, you know, is, there's two things. One is this kind of almost mythic power that that Jews, you know, have this almost that hypnotizing comment, right? Is an example of that. That there's something almost this uncanny kind of mythic, strange almost occult power that the Jews have, you know, these chosen people of the Bible, right? That's, uh, that's, that's not a good way to label yourself as the chosen people of God, right? <laughs> it's, a, it, it's bound to create some resentment from others. Um, but, you know, that, that's another, another aspect of this, this general attitude 
toward the Jews. And then the other theme that you mentioned, Betty, which is betrayal, right? That, that the Jews are ready to betray us. And that's, you know, the Nazis stab in the back theory. Uh, we accepted them into our country, you know, not, not you know, pre-Nazi Germany was actually a pretty good place to be a Jew in Europe. Um, and, and, you know, and, and yet that was used against Jews because we, we accepted you was the Nazis line. We were nice to you and you stabbed us in the back. And of course we see that also in the theme of the, the Judas kiss, right? Jews as the betrayer. And, and this plays right through to the idea that Jews are more, you know, American Jews might be more loyal to Israel than they are to the U.S. And David and Duke, so David Duke, they're suspect. David Duke spoke to this in his his meme, um, saying that the gorilla in the room that nobody dared to challenge until now. It is time to end the Zionist takeover of America, and he's he's expressing exactly what you have just described, um, and uh, paradoxically supported and and was disappointed when Omar apologized. And and I think the symbolism has to be taken to the fact that here is a freshman young congresswoman who is one of the first if you know one of the first Muslims to hold uh, a seat in the House of Representatives and and that she represents something by her her identities and she's a threat. She's a threat, exactly, and and she's easily taken down because if this was if she's in the position of Nancy Pelosi, I think we would have, be having a very different conversation. Um, you know, it'd be more complex, and but she doesn't have the power that some of these men who've been attacking her do. Um, and, and they're so, threatened by her presence; they just absolutely. simply are. And and you know, they're trying to silence her, and that's I think the really the shame of all of this is that I think she has important things to say and to contribute uh, that need to be contributed, that should be in a free and democratic society, and that they're using this as a way of silencing her. And she herself is a historic figure, you know, right. and, and... But that... on the other side of it, you have people who I've been talking to all week saying she didn't do anything wrong. And and what also, Peter, and then we should probably wrap up, but what, what sort of, what depressed me and what, what prompted me to reach out to you was... The seeming like lack of interest that so many quote unquote progressives had in trying to empathize or at least stop and say, well, why is everybody so upset? Like there was no moment, we were so interested, well, lobbyists are awful, money is awful, Israel's awful, so it's not anti-Semitic. And I remember saying to somebody like, wait, wait, don't you, don't you care that people are hurt? Like where is the... Right. I mean, I think something that, that, Peter, that you pointed to is the, the issue of time. You know, we're not thinking about history and we're not thinking about the, the time that is these tweets are coming fast and furious. And, you know, before anybody can think about what happened, somebody's tweeting something else. And and before we know it, David Duke is weighing in. And that's like a big uh, Molotov cocktail in the middle of all of this. Um, this yeah. white supremacist has now sort of thrown his hat into the ring. And and how, one of the things before we go, Peter, how do we get beyond this? How do we, how do we engender a place where we can think rather than create these crises, these Twitter crises? I think it's really hard because the pressures are, are out there on politicians because social media gets you attention. And of course, that's the oxygen of politics. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, and it, and more nuanced discussion often doesn't really sell as 
well as dog whistles and conflict, you know, and quick reactions and playing to your base. And I think the the point about progressives, I mean, the anti-Semitism of the left, I think, happens when the Jews are just placed firmly into the suppressor category. And therefore, it's okay to say anything bad about the oppressor because like white men, they're they're basically bad, you know, responsible for all that is bad. And 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 then being oppressed becomes kind of a shield, right? If if my group is oppressed, then then we can't be criticized, but we can criticize you, criticize you. So you know, Jews occupy this really weird position. It's like, hey, wait, hey, we have been oppressed. Um, hello, you know, the Holocaust, um, two thousand years of anti-Semitism. But now with you know on on the the left, it's Squirrel going to be Hill. all about right. Israel as the oppressor. Um, and, and again, just sort of generalizing this when this kind of just becomes this, this, you know, polarized, um, overarching, you know, not a discussion, not about the facts so much as this overall emotion, like you said, Michael, then I think it's, that's where it gets really problematic. Well, listen, thank you. As, as Betty, as you were talking about David Duke, I was thinking what Peter had said to us earlier on uh, the last episode you know, these tweets were the most bizarre things. You had David Duke, you had all these progressive left-wing Chris people. Hayes. Chris Hayes saying, you know, and it was like, what a weird mix of people all basically defending this tweet. I mean, you had a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan for vastly different reasons than, granted, I'm not suggesting for the same reason, as, you know, some of the most progressive people that I follow defending the tweet. And I was thinking, like, back to your comment, Peter, it's like, who thinks the Jews are clever? Right, uh, Jews and anti-Semites. Um, hey, well, at least the Jews can unite. You know, the left, the extreme left, with the extreme right, and um, right, it's a kumbaya um, moment. <laughs> Muslim extremists with Christian extremists. You know, I mean, who can bring them all together? Only the Jews. There you go. There you go. Well, listen, thank you, guys, th- Peter. Thank you very much for coming back uh, on such short notice and and yeah. dipping your toe into this troubled water. Thanks for hey, helping th- us try to make for sense of me. this. I want- yeah, I want to be a co-host now. Um, so. <laughs> That's right. You're all close. You're closer than move, any other guest. Come move to I, New I, York. <laughs> I should at least get a T-shirt or something. Oh, you know? absolutely. Oh, we have to get those going. Yeah. Definitely, right. definitely. Well, listen, thanks a lot, Peter. You have reached the end of this special episode. And as my rabbi likes to say to me, take your problems home with you. Uh, Mind Estate is a production of Mind Estate Media, LLC, and Hangar Studios, NYC. Our Cracker Jack producer is Caroline Quash. Our engineer today is Jack Dixon. Mind Estate's original music is composed by Joel Goodman, courtesy of Uber Music. I'm Michael Epstein. And I'm Betty Tang. You can connect with us on Twitter at Mind of State Pod, on our Facebook page, and at our website, mindofstate.com. You can also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.